0: So while I love exploring varied views and get a buzz from a healthy debate of ideas, this is not a purely blue, white, green program. Please subscribe, tune in and enjoy the politics of everything. Wellbeing isn't a nice to have, it's necessary. It's necessary for our health, our energy, connection, creativity, relationships, performance and the list goes on. But despite this, investing time in our health and well-being often hits the bottom of our priorities. And if you are also wired to seek out high performance, it can seem like an oxymoron perhaps. Remember sayings like lunches for wimps in the 1980s and politicians bragging about getting four hours sleep a night and that was all they needed. Fleur Hazelwood has been a past guest on this show, but as a reminder, she is a leadership expert, speaker speaker and founder of the Blueberry Institute. She works with leaders to create healthy, high performance in both themselves and their teams. Flo has coached and trained over 3,000 leaders in future fit resilience, positive leadership skills, and sustainable, healthy, high performance. Her first book, Resilience Recipes, A Practical Guide to Better Personal Wellbeing one. Best health and well-being book in 2022, and that's when we first had Fleur on the show. She now has a follow-up book, Leading Wellbeing: A Leader's Guide to Mental Health Conversations at Work, and that's what we're chatting about today. So, welcome back to the Politics of Everything, Fleur.
1: It's a pleasure to be here, and I'm really looking forward to talking about how we can put the well-being back into work.
0: Podcasting remotely can be challenging but it doesn't have to be. Since day one of the politics of everything I have relied on Zencaster's all-in-one solution to make the process quick and painless the way it should be for those of us who just love great content and want to get our ideas out into the world. If you know me I'm obsessed with quality in terms of my guests, my sound and everything about my show has to be great the first time. I'm It's so easy to use Zencaster. I'm not tech savvy and you don't need to be either. There's nothing to download. Just click on the link and off we go. Zencaster is all about making your podcasting experience easy and with everything from local recording to automate post productions now in their toolkit, you don't have to leave your browser to get that episode done and done fast. I have a special offer for you, and I hopefully you can experience what I have with Zencaster. Go to zencaster.com forward slash pricing and use my VIP code, the politics of everything, all lowercase in one word, to get 30% off your first three months of Zencaster Professional. How good is that? I want you to have the same easy experiences I do for all my podcasting and content needs. It's time to share your story. Yeah, look, how do you define that term of healthy high performance and is it really easily achievable? Give us a bit of a, I guess, a 101 on this concept.
1: So the way I describe healthy high performance is very much around feeling good, functioning well, with the energy and motivation for us to consistently deliver high levels of productivity and results that are sustained over time. And I think one of the biggest challenges with healthy high performance which is similar to well-being and which is similar to resilience is that there's actually no universally agreed definition. So it's not surprising then that people kind of like go, well, what is it and how do I achieve it and like where do, where do I go with this or how do I apply this to myself or how do I apply this to work. And so My answer to this is that it's a combination of yes, it is easily achievable and no, it isn't. It sounds, once again, another oxymoron. (laughs) Absolutely. And so I'll start with the isn't part. Okay. So So the isn't part is that it actually requires a mindset shift. And changes to our unconscious automatic ways of engaging and behaving. And so those things aren't necessarily that straightforward because it takes energy and deliberate change and that slows us down in the short time. But the easily achievable part is, is that healthy high performance doesn't actually require additional work just simple changes to the way we go about doing our work. So things like how we communicate, what we prioritise, how we can be more proactive in managing workloads, how we can do things like support flexible working practices, respect and model boundaries to things like working hours and time out for wellbeing. All of these things, you know, add or detract from a mentally healthy working environment, but they're not projects or, you know, things that we need to add on top of our to-do lists. They're just tweaks or refinements to the way we approach, I guess, how we decide, prioritize and communicate what's important. Yeah, there's a lot in that. So your new book is based on the premise that
0: I guess many leaders particularly feel ill-equipped and lack some of the skills and training to have difficult and supportive mental health conversations that are really needed to support Maybe themselves, but also the people that they they're engaging with, that they're working with. Have we got to this point, perhaps, as a leader, and not developed that that muscle, if you like?
1: Well, there's two, I guess, two key areas where the leaders that I speak with in my training programs share that they feel sort of like a lack of confidence and a lack of skill in terms of being able to to tackle this. And the first is around a lack of clarity and understanding on exactly what our role and responsibilities are when it comes to team mental health and well-being, and when you wade through all the workplace legislation and acts, the technical language describing what those responsibilities are in terms like psychological safety and psychosocial health, you can actually understand that it's quite difficult to translate this into clear everyday responsibilities and actions that that, that make that make sense. And so, I like to break things down. So if we sort of take those terms, the psychological safety and psychosocial health or psychosocial hazards, what we're talking about here is a responsibility for ensuring that our people have the clarity of their roles, the training and support to be able to do their their roles, the resources, knowledge, supervision and feedback to be able to perform their jobs healthily and, and well. So taking the time to, you know, look at what exactly it is that we, we need to do and breaking it down into those everyday tasks and ways of relating and being makes it a lot easier. And these are things that all of us can address with things like better conversations, skills training, and then going back and looking at our team processes and the procedures for, for, for doing things. And then the biggest skill gap that leaders share with me. So the first one is, is we struggle a little bit with clarity, like what exactly is my role when it comes to this? But then the biggest skill gap leaders share with me me is that we don't feel equipped or confident or expert enough in mental health to start those conversations and know that they're appropriately supporting people. So not getting too personal or not backing off too far that they're concerned about.
0: And that is a hard thing. Like I was in in a corporate yesterday doing some training work and obviously we've now got four generations in a workplace and everyone has different, I guess, values and experiences and things like that. And someone else who is a little bit older than me but also Gen X was just saying like he feels like he walks on eggshells a lot, like even asking someone how their weekend is, like, if it's not said in the right way and the right time, he's worried he's going to get a call from HR. Like it feels like it's it's hard to navigate because, you know, the rules have changed a little bit, would you say, as well? Like it's not just about actually having good intentions but knowing how to do it?
1: Absolutely. So the rules have changed. So last year, the Workplace Health and Safety Act was tightened up to provide more of an onus on our, I guess, our organisations in general. They use the word employers and leaders to not only manage mental health illness or accidents and psychological safety accidents and those kinds of things when they occur in the workplace, but we also now have a preventative responsibility to prevent psychosocial harm in the first place. And so that actually includes things like recognising the signs for when our team members are starting to experience unhealthy levels of stress and being proactive around managing that workload. It also includes being aware of the language and the way that people are treating each other in, in a team to ensure that people are feeling psychologically safe So what we mean by that is, is they're not being picked on for having a different view or looking at things in a different way or responding differently to the way other people are in this team. And so it's not surprising that many leaders are feeling a little bit uncertain and unsure, but the good news is, is what we're talking about here is a skill set. So all of these things that we now have a more specific responsibility to navigate are actually learnable skills that we can all develop and and add to our add to our toolkits. So if you think about it, you know, once, once upon a time, you know, back in the 1950s, if you'd told people that, you know, the way that you improved your physical fitness was, you know, going for a run, they'd say, you've got to be kidding. You know, what are you running from? Like what, what, what's going on? In the 1950s, we all had enough sort of like incidental exercise that we actually didn't need deliberate policies around what physical fitness was or guidelines around what appropriate physical exercise looks like for physical health. And so I like to compare the environment that we're in now in a similar way. This is something that's always, I guess, been a moral imperative for organisations and leaders to acknowledge and try and manage. But now that it is more specific around what appropriate psychological safety looks like and what psychosocial health looks like, we're now in that place where the processes and the procedures and the way that we learn to support our teams and speak with our teams also needs an update Think about it. I guess like a, a systems like, you know, update. I'm picturing my yeah, my computer
0: just going. Sorry, you've had me off for a week. You've been on holidays. You now need to like upgrade the system or the software, and and that totally makes sense. You have a mental health mastery approach to these conversations, which you say it provides practical steps and suggestions and even scripts to help people prepare, ask, listen, empower action and support people with this high performance, this healthy high performance. Can you tell us a little bit about this secret sauce and like maybe just an example of of how this might actually work in a workplace?
1: So how my mental health mastery approach came about has been from, oh, goodness, like three years, three, four years worth of conversations in my leadership training program with leaders around the things that they feel comfortable, uncomfortable, confident, not com- you know, not confident or inconfident. That wasn't great grammar, was it? And one of the things that we talked about was the fact that they all had a growing awareness that, yes, I need to do this better, but there actually wasn't a lot of practical help and support. So, we're in this area where we've had this systems update. So, this workplace legislation and the regulations have hit us all, but there hasn't actually been a helpful or practical user manual. And so, I've put together a five-step conversation framework that can support anyone, even though the focus of the book and the framework is on leaders. Anyone can pick up the framework and feel more confident around having an appropriate and supportive mental health or well-being conversation with someone that we're concerned about, either at work, or you can use the same principles for select so like friends and family outside of work. And so the key elements it covers are the core questions that you know people are consistently asking. So I provide help with recognizing the signs. So how do I recognize the signs of chronic stress versus burnout, say, a mental health issue? You know, how do I have a safe or personal conversation in a workplace context? So, you know, going back to that example you gave me from, you know, from your corporate conversation yesterday, then how do I actually get started with the conversation? What do I say what do I say when someone does come back and says that they're not okay and I'm not a mental health expert? And then importantly I add that leadership or that workplace layering or the perspective around then, how do you encourage someone to access help without taking personal responsibility for managing their health plan? Yourself. I was going to say
0: that's that's probably the gap most people feel like, you know, being the listening ear, maybe having that right wording and, and situation to encourage the conversation but I guess it's that next step isn't it where you go okay where do I hand this on to is it to HR or is it to someone in you know a psychologist like how does that happen I guess.
1: Absolutely and the other part of that as well is most of us as leaders are brought up with this notion that there's no such thing as a problem, only a solution or don't come to me with a problem, come to me with how you're going to fix it. And most of us have grown up in our leadership careers where success has been defined by you know what you've assumed for your um, responsibility for and the results that you've delivered. And so when it comes to supporting someone who might be having mental health or wellbeing struggles at work, one of the biggest things that, you know, leaders are concerned about, they go, oh, my goodness, I've already got – this overwhelming to do list that I can't can't get through. If I check in with um, someone and they say that they're not okay, am I also going to have to sort of like take responsibility for their health and well being? I just do not have the capacity, let alone the, the the skills to be able to do that. And the reality is is that we actually don't need to take on that personal responsibility. And so within. The, the framework, I can provide, or not I can, I do provide leaders with, you know, how we appropriately support people in gaining the professional help without it becoming an addition to our workload, but also without absolving our responsibility for supporting the actions that they need to take In in the
0: workplace, yeah, that all makes makes good sense, I think. How can leaders ensure they are providing psychological safety for their teams and balancing, like we've just talked about, those things like performance and output and all those sorts of metrics, if you like, and care? Is there a way in which that, I guess, works symbiotically so that the results for both are kind of really evident and flourishing? Because a lot of organisations. Let's face it, whether they're a not-for-profit or a small business, you know, they want to know that it's going to be worth their time and investment to actually do some of these measures, not just because they care about people, but because it's good for business really.
1: Absolutely. And where we see a lot about psychological safety in the regulations, in the media, what's written about it, and so forth is very much as this compliance thing. And so many of us look at it and go, oh, here we go, you know one more thing that I've got to get my head around, you know how this looks like, and what are the minim- what's the minimum that I need to do to ensure that I've of so, like, ticked this box at work with my team. Mm. But the reality is is that psychological safety is actually the foundation for high performance. And so one of the things or one of the key messages I share with people is that it's if we view it as a compliance exercise it's going to feel like a compliance exercise and it's also not going to be real. So when we talk about what psychological safety is put simply it's a shared belief held by all members of our team, that our team is safe into personal risk-taking. And so if we're just going through the motions and doing a sort of like a box um, exercise, by the very nature of it, we're actually undermining psychological safety. But if we also look at it and go, hey, if we're talking about a team that feels comfortable debating, sharing, being different, trying new things, communicating when they need help and so forth, what we're actually doing is we're increasing team trust, we're increasing team um, cohesion and we're increasing team debate and collaboration. So both of those things are the are key elements that take us from a performing team into a into, into high-performing team. But when we sort of like boil it down, um, there's two elements um, that are really important for us that we can just like focus on that are going to help us move closer to psychological safety. So the first one is is that in our one on one meetings, we're checking in with our team members to ask them, Do you have what you need? Do you feel comfortable with your your KPIs? Is there any support? Is there any training? Is there anyone that needs to, you know, to need to, to give give you give you any support so we're providing a safe environment for them to bring up the things like their mistakes or or vulnerabilities in a safe place knowing that the team you know is isn't necessarily going to you know see those vulnerabilities while they're while they're working through them the second element is in our team meetings modeling and asking people to share not only a win but also to share a risk that they took or to share something that they've learned from something that they did, where they um, maybe received an outcome that they weren't expecting. So we're creating a culture where mistakes and differences are seen as learning opportunities, not something to be to be penalized. And so that's two very, very simple ways that anyone can, start to bring in more psychological um, safety into a team. And when we talk about the ways that work best, it's the simple ways and it's the everyday conversations that are the most powerful.
0: That's the human element, I suppose, isn't it? Not overly formalizing some of these things, like having a structure, but certainly bringing, you know, humanity into this, because at the end of the day, we are dealing with with people. And I think, you know, sometimes in organizations, you know, systems and processes become very bogged down in dogma rather than perhaps just remembering that they're in front of people and you know it's a two-way conversation and I think you've really highlighted why that why that is so important when have you seen making our health first ensuring we can achieve true high performance work best even on a no-names basis there are organizations that you've been either part of or witnessed or worked with where you've seen it kind of go from you know a pretty ordinary base to something where you go wow they're actually getting this and they've really made a difference.
1: There's two quite well-known researchers and academics that have actually documented quite a number of studies and companies that anyone can actually look up to see tangible actions and, and tangible results. And I think Sean Aker, who was a former Harvard researcher and the author of The Happy Secret to Better Work, is actually a really nice place for anyone to see and he's got an extremely entertaining TED Talk. I'm not sure about you, Amber, but I've watched a lot of dull TED Talks. Oh, I think we've
0: reached peak TED, I reckon, a few years ago, hey, where it's like, (laughs) oh, I know this person's probably got some value but I feel like I'm either going to fast forward or drop off.
1: Exactly. So anyway, so Sean is actually someone who has a fabulous evidence-based, well-researched TED Talk. So he literally, I think it was over four years, researched thousands of workers and hundreds of organisations across 40 plus countries and demonstrated that when we prioritise health and happiness first... All the key metrics for performance increase anywhere between nine and thirty percent. So things like productivity, sales, relationships, innovation—all all those key things that contribute to both, you know, well-being as, as as well as performance at work. And then Kim Cameron out of the University of Michigan. He, oh, I think he's close to 25 years worth of studies around what are the characteristics of organizations that perform exceptionally well and he's also got a lot of case studies that are freely available on his particular his particular website but then on a more I guess you know local and and personal level one of the the companies that I did a well-being culture transformation, program with going back 5 6 years ago we measured not only our leaders' literacy when it came to mental health and well-being conversations but also their positive leadership skills around encouraging flourishing using things like strengths acknowledging and rewarding performance although all those basics that contribute to people feeling good and you know functioning well and knowing that what they're doing you know is is contributing contributing well and we saw improved hr metrics on things like reduced turnover reduced absenteeism increases in engagement intention to stay we reduced safety incidents and the company continued to increase sales profit and market share at the time it sounds like a dream (laughs) It just sounds like it's well, everything you could possibly want. It
0: took it took two years worth. I was going to of... ask you that how long, yep. you know, and I guess that's hard
1: to sort of you know exactly. standardize in some ways. Exactly. So so we're talking about a change process and a cultural change process and it also occurred uh, during a time when we were merging three quite disparate divisions into one so you know it was done during a time of uncertainty and change not just a you know a time of success and performance but i guess one of the things that i want to share is that when the pandemic hit and when covid hit and we had the uncertainty around the market and jobs and what does working from home look like and how do we pe- keep people safe across you know state lines and different you know requirements around restrictions and lockdowns and all those different different things the organization rallied very very quickly and we figured out how to do online conversations around how people were feeling and what people needed to manage stress at home, stress at work, and to support client stress. And the company came through in much better shape than many other organizations that didn't have that solid foundation of well-being, literacy, and prioritization as a part of culture.
0: Mm, That's good. That's good to know that whole journey, I guess, where they landed and what's kind of through difficult times actually put them in good stead which I think you know future proofing has got to be part of that conversation as well. Is the argument around things like work from home mandates an example of non-healthy high performance or is it not about where we work but how and I guess with whom and all those other elements as well because obviously we've been through that era of the pandemic hybrid work is is the norm but also there's this kind of tussle it almost feels like between organisations which are saying well you can't just work from home whenever you feel like because there's no health reason to do it like in terms of public health safety but sort of certainly the younger generations have an expectation around it. Are those conversations kind of moot because it's not about that in your view? How, how do you see that in the in the mix I guess?
1: I think one of the things that we miss with mandates is that anything that is mandated is actually counter to health and well-being, and interestingly enough, not only are they counter to health and well, um, health and well-being, but they're also of like almost like a counteracting um, performance as well. Because when we look at the key drivers for both well-being and performance, particularly the overlapping ones, things like autonomy, empowerment, trust, transparency, and collaboration are key drivers which underpin this. And so where it's going to be interesting to see where these working, you know, back in the office and specific days in the office pan out over time is what that does when it comes to a culture of healthy high performance between people who have come from a place where they've demonstrated that they can perform equally as well at home versus at work and what that looks like in terms of how they're treated in these mandates. I mean, we've seen things in the media about companies linking pay rises. And bonuses, yeah. Yeah, pay rises and bonuses to just a simple like compliance exercise. I mean, this is going back to, you know, those old school 50 days where you you know, 1950s days where, you know, where you're clocked in and clocked out. Mm. The only difference between sort of like that old-fashioned punch card is that it's now a modern-day version swipe card. So it does feel a little bit, you know, like we're going back to some of those old-school regimes because people are struggling with how to healthily transition a team into this next iteration of a new environment.
0: Mm, And it's interesting because like there was an example this week of, and this is where kind of I guess it's about a two-way conversation, you know, between, you know, your employer and and the leadership team and so forth. Someone was like disingenuously pretending they were working from home in Sydney and they could see that they were logging in from some holiday location but hadn't taken holiday leave. You know, like it's got to be – I think, done with a degree of transparency and that's probably a rare case but, you know, they basically got fired because like why are you in, you know, Barbados (laughs) logging in and you haven't declared that? Yeah, so I think those things don't help because people then, you know, the the trust is kind of broken.
1: And also trust works both ways. So, you know, if there wasn't a mandate for, you know, turning up to the office in this day looking like this, logging in as That then you also would be in a place where team members wouldn't necessarily feel the need that they need to hide things when they need maybe greater flexibility or transparency, whether it be around, you know, school pickups or an unwell child or, you know, taking time out of the day to go and run a a personal task. Now, obviously, Barbados is taking it to the opposite extreme. Yeah. And I think it's just about if you're not. Yeah, I mean, you can't
0: pretend you're doing an eight-hour day if that's what you need to do in in that location. Like it's unlikely, you know, you're in some amazing location, you're going to be tied to your hotel room Wi-Fi. But, you know, yeah, that's just a really extreme example. Changing tack a little bit, what's your number one business tool or hack, and it can't be your smartphone, that's really helped you in your day-to-day life or
1: business? Well, one of the things that we spoke about earlier was that, it can be quite difficult putting the mindset shift in that focus on the healthy part of high performance. And so for me, my number one hack has actually been putting into action the mindset shift. And it's that wellbeing is your enabler of performance and not a reward for results.
0: Mm, I love that. So that flips a lot of, I guess, our you know, way which we see um, the priority as well, the triaging of
1: that. Absolutely. And so for many of us, we look at what we need to achieve from, you know, a work or a business priority thing and we go, okay, all right. When I've completed all of this, if I have time, you know, this afternoon or at the end of the the day or tonight, then I'll do something for myself. And the reality is as we get to the end of the day or the night, there's still more things that need to be ticked off or we no longer have the energy to invest in what it is that we want. And so for me, my number one hack that's made an exponential difference or improvement to my overall, I guess, performance and energy and enjoyment of life is to actually put my exercise, my meditation, my yoga at the beginning of my day to set me up for having a great day, which not only boosts my energy for the things that I need to do, but I'm also not feeling guilty at the end of the day for, you know, not taking care of the things that I need to for myself.
0: Mm, I agree. I totally agree with that theory. The biggest life
1: lesson that you've had to date and why? So my biggest life lesson to date which is probably not surprisingly given, given my area of expertise, is that burnout is not an acceptable price for success. And I learned this the hard way as CEO of a textile company during the global financial crisis. So I worked 80-hour weeks for close to two years to ensure that my staff, which included manufacturing and warehousing employees, had enough work to be able to justify everyone having some work or everyone having a role, while ensuring at the same time that we had the commercial performance, that we needed to be able to, I guess, retain all those jobs and, and navigate the the financial fluctuations, short time, but setting us up or putting us in a market leading position for when we came through that cycle. And so I'm actually really proud to say that I retained every single job and at the same time reported the highest profit performance in the group. So there's a group of 10 companies and mine was actually the smallest and increased market share during this time. But personally, I developed quite debilitating burnout, which led to both physical as well as mental ill health. And personally, it took me 18 months to recover from that.
0: So the price is pretty high. Too absolutely. high.
1: <laughs> yep. Definitely so my, too high. So my, my, my biggest life lesson and my key message for anyone listening to us today is that burnout is absolutely not an acceptable price for success. And we actually can achieve both healthy as well as high performance. So that leads me to ask you today, what does success mean to you? Like what does that look like? So my definition of success is much broader and I like to use the word wealth because for me wealth includes great health, great relationships, purpose and contribution within a frame of financial security as well as work freedom.
0: That's great. I think everyone can aspire to that. And a final message for us today, Fleur, on the politics of healthy high performance.
1: Is that you can achieve the healthy in high performance and the first place to start is to look at or start viewing well-being as your enabler for performance as opposed to a reward that you fit into the cracks of your time after you've achieved the commercial results.
0: Fantastic advice and, of course, another great conversation, flur. So if you do want to connect further, of course, there are details on our show notes. Until next time, take care. Thanks so much for listening today. If you've enjoyed The Politics of Everything, I thrive on your feedback. So please add a short review and share the podcast with your network through Apple, Spotify and all the usual suspects.